0: Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Wheeland presley and Van Ho Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Wheeland presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Ho in East Moline, proudly supporting WQPT. Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities.
1: It's been a really cold winter. Wait, a really warm winter with huge snowfalls. Wait, with almost no snow left in February. In other words, what a strange season it's been in the cities. The National Weather Service has just released the first of three predictions regarding the potential for flooding across the region this spring. So often that flooding is from ice jams or a quick snow melt, but that seems unlikely now. And all that snow we saw at the start of the year, will it have any impact on the nagging drought conditions some farmers face? We're joined by National Weather Service hydrologist Matt Wilson, the guy behind some of those predictions for 2024. What a winter we've had. I mean, you start January with bitter cold and a ton of snow, and then you end January with a big thaw. Welcome to winter.
2: Yeah, welcome to winter. And uh, looking at some of the models, I hope you enjoyed it. It might be over. (laughs) Why is that? Uh, The models are looking uh, right now above average temperatures and below average precipitation for the next couple months. So that snow might be the snow that we see down here for the rest of the year. We might have a few small... Events, but as far as a big cold snap and you know a white landscape, I think uh, I think that couple of weeks in January is what we're going to get.
1: So why is winter the way it is these days? I mean, is it a, is it a changing airflow? Is it different systems? Um, it's you know weather cyclical, climate
2: yeah. cyclical. Uh, we're in kind of a warmer, drier pattern this year. Was an El Nino. Uh, what we saw this year was a pretty typical El Nino where it's been warmer than average outside of that one cold snap. Uh, We have, you know, it was one of the warmest December's on record. Uh, We're moving into February that's supposed to be above average. Outside of that about two, three week cold snap, it's been warmer than average. And that's pretty typical for an El Nino uh, cycle here in the upper Midwest.
1: Is it typical that it got so cold? I mean, it, it, it just swung from one extreme to the other, it seems.
2: It it does. uh, So that really has to do more with that uh, that polar jet stream Uh, and sometimes the warmer it gets up in the polar regions, the less stable that gets. So you get those big swings where they'll you'll get some of that cold Arctic air really pulling far down to the south. Uh, So that is kind of typical with a warming polar region, an unstable uh, polar uh, jet stream. Will allow some of that colder air to get further south than we would even normally see in a in a, in a regular year.
1: So when when you think of a, a Midwest winter, you think uh, maybe snow at Christmas. Lately, not so much snow coming at the beginning of the year, and then snowfall in January, February, and early March. Maybe one big last hurrah mm-hmm. of winter in March. If we're not seeing that, who is? Uh, well, they.
2: If we uh, look back to last year, uh, just north of us, you know, up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, they really saw it last year. Going into uh, February, they they were below average snowfall up here, and by the beginning of April, they were one of the snowiest uh, years on record in a lot of places in Upper Minnesota
1: and Wisconsin. Yeah, I remember Duluth setting a record last year, yes. which you think, boy, for Duluth, that's a lot of snow if they're setting records. <laughs> so. You're in the predictive area of telling us what the rivers are gonna look like. And and so, so often it isn't the snow here that impacts it, it is the snow to the north. Sure. Um, so tell me what's going on to the north that is giving you some idea of what the flood potential is here. So right now, uh, you know, I, I have
2: uh, colleagues that work at the North Central River Forecast Center in Chanhassen, Minnesota, it's part of the Twin Cities. And I'm seeing pictures from them every day of, bare ground and that's the story up north they don't have snow right now as as it sits beginning of february there's barely any snow on the ground in the headwaters area of the mississippi so what that does for us it's given us kind of two 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 bullets in our chamber one's good one's bad so So, let's do
1: the good first the
2: good is that you know right now there's not a lot of snow on the ground. There's not a lot of water. In, there's not a lot of water on the ground up there that's waiting to come down, so that's positive. So
1: all the tributaries into the Mississippi River. Because you're basically talking about the Mississippi River right and the Rock River, I guess when you talk about snow melt. so that isn't there. Rock River is so well known for having ice jams. Yep. That's not there either. Right. Right now, um, at the end of January, we had that warm
2: spell, and we did have some ice jams on the Rock River. That occurred then in early February, but at that after that, you know, right now the the river's clear of ice. Yeah. So we are, you know, that threat right now has passed. It would take another really strong cold snap to really build that ice there. To that would have to last to, a while. Too. That would have to last a while, and then it would have to, you know, would warm back up and thaw out and start moving back downstream. And you know, the models really don't show that
1: right now. So flooding po- is very low for this spring.
2: Right now that is as it stands right now. That's very true. But uh, just remember last year, spring flood outlook, number one, we had a very low uh, probability probability of any kind of major flooding along the Mississippi. And then it was right after that, that the snow started, that that snow pattern started hitting up north and they were getting, you know, pretty heavy events once or twice every week yes, from mid-February to the end of March. And they built up that massive snowpack. So it can happen. Right now, the the models aren't favorable for that. So let's talk about the negative of that. So the negative of not having a snow cover up north is were they to get a strong cold snap before they get snow, that will really freeze the ground up there solid. Right now, it's probably about two to three feet where the ground's frozen up north. Around here, we don't have any frost depth because we're above freezing, wow. we know snow cover. You know, We're looking pretty good here for soaking in those soils. But up north, it's still a little colder. You know, Above average temperatures in Minnesota in January is still not very warm, not beach weather uh so you definitely are looking at frozen soils up there 18 to 24 inches maybe 36 in some places but you add you get another cold snap and that freezes even deeper and then you throw some snow on top of that when it melts it basically like it's melting on a parking lot and just run right off into the river so that's kind of the a threat that's that's set up there but again you have to put snow on top of it and right now we're not seeing any of that
1: well so there's so that means there's not a lot of water that's going to be coming down river the Mississippi River was at what historic lows in late fall Um, even this area the river was was low in some places Uh, you kind of say how low can it go I mean is that going to have an impact on on the opposite not the flooding but the depth of the river it definitely can Uh, we're you know we did have uh, some pretty uh,
2: low water levels in October, November, especially a little bit further north, uh, north near the Dubuque area. There was uh, lower water levels up there than we see. And then down south between uh, St. Louis and Memphis, there was actually some issues with barge traffic down there. Uh, the Corps of Engineers did a great job of mitigating that to the best of their ability, but you know, they, they don't make the water. They they, just they they just they just yeah. help uh, keep it, it keep it flowing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we we definitely can see. Uh, it's very possible that we will see lower than average Mississippi uh, levels this year if we don't get either regular spring rain mm-hmm. or get some more snowfall up north.
1: Well, we've talked about the river. Let's talk about the land as well because okay. the drought monitor has been showing really dry conditions. Uh, for for parts of eastern southeastern hmm. Iowa in particular, um, and and tell me a little bit about this melt and this rain because you would think some of that had to soak in.
2: Yeah, and honestly, it was a pretty good setup for uh, for it to, to melt in. So we had about between two and three inches of snow water equivalent. So that's basically if you take a sample of the snow from the top all the way to the ground and melt that water out, that's how many inches of rain it would equal. So we had two to three inches of snow water equivalent, and then we got another half inch to an inch of light, you know, mild rain on top of that. Which Not a big, exactly what you want. It's exactly what you want. You know, slightly above average temperatures, day and night, so you just get a nice, slow steady melt and soak in. And that's what we saw. Um, it just, you know, we did go into fall in a very severe drought. So here in Eastern Iowa, was the first time back in fall that we've ever seen that category four, uh, you know, the most extreme drought that there is. That's the first time we've ever seen that here in eastern Iowa since Drought Monitor's been in creation over twenty years now. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, especially around Lynn, Lynn County, you know, just uh, west of Cedar Rapids was some of the worst some of the worst drought I've ever uh, personally seen as well. So. Um, what that base, you know, basically that means that we just, we need a lot more precipitation a lot more moisture to mitigate that and we did get a good bit here with the uh, with the snowmelt i think we're going to see more improvements on the drought monitor in the next week or so so hopefully uh, we'll as things start to rebound cuz the other thing i think is it's harder than some of this especially with a slow melt is that it takes a couple of weeks before you start to see those signals in what we're looking at when we start to improve the drought monitor. Because it doesn't go into the streams right away, uh, you have a slower rise in the stream. It, it, uh, instead of it being runoff and it goes right into the streams, hmm. it goes into what we call base flow. So it comes through the ground and then back into the stream. So you see a slower, steadier rise in those streams than you would uh, from just a runoff event. So that takes a little bit longer for that water to percolate through the system and then get into the streams, which is one of our major indicators. Um, also, you know, we, uh, we do look at soil moisture monitors, but those are very limited here in Eastern Iowa. Uh, the Iowa Flood Center is actually in the process of putting in 30, 30 something more here in Eastern Iowa, and that will be fantastic for us to be able to have just more data points uh, that we can look and examine.
1: What we saw last spring was was pretty good precipitation, which also had an impact on the drought. That was the spring. And then we went into this real dry period of the summer and the fall. I'm telling you stuff that you already know. <laughs> Can you predict that for this year? I mean, what, what caused that that could cause it again? It's,
2: it, it's really hard to predict. We've been in a dry cycle here for the last three years. Three plus, it seems. Since almost. summer of 2020, we've okay. been in a rainfall deficit here in, or a precipitation deficit here in eastern Iowa. And that's just, it is it is cyclical, and it, but it's, you know, as far as it goes, it's, it, it's hard to put a prediction out as to what the summer's going to be like. But just looking at the next two to three months, which, you know, Climate Prediction Center for the National Weather Service does have three month outlooks, it, it, it's, it's not looking favorable for above average precipitation. We're looking at below average numbers and above average temperatures. So that's not the best news when you're trying to bust a drought.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people will like that. It's gonna be a little bit warmer and drier so you can get more stuff accomplished. But like you said, this is gonna have an impact on farmers and as well as barge traffic, which is the lifeline, the economy for the area.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely, it's, um, it, those uh, climate outlooks are not, uh, not favorable really for the, the local economy as far as you know, ag and barge goes.
1: Our thanks to National Weather Service hydrologist, Matt Wilson. In a moment, the Putnam just found something special in its museum attic. Are there more surprises in store? But first, it was three years ago when the drummer known as Dead Ginger joined us on the stage of the Black Box Theater for the original series of performances recorded on WQPT. So here's Dead Ginger with Clarity to Chaos. ginger with clarity to chaos performed at Moline's black box theater. The Putnam Museum is ready to throw a party, but this year's big fundraiser on February 24th will feature a surprise that's been unearthed in the vaults of the Davenport Museum for years. The Putnam's marketing director, Scott Peake, joined us to talk about it. Mysteries of the museum is kind of um, hearkening back to the fact that you guys got stuff in storage that hasn't seen the light of day for a while. (laughs) Is that what this is? I mean,
3: yeah, there's there's um, 250,000 items oh, yeah. in the Putnam collection, and only about 10% of that is on display at any time. And so there are things in the collection that people may not be aware of. There are things in the collection that might have, you know, a taboo nature or a mysterious nature to it. Um, and there might be things in the collection that we didn't know we had um, because a lot of these things were acquired hundreds, years ago in some cases or longer. And they were documented as one thing and maybe new discoveries have been made clear that they were something else. <laughs> well, okay, so
1: you're, you're tempting me here. So, I am tempting so you, yes. The, the Putnam's having a major fundraiser, their annual fundraiser. Yes. And one of the items that's kind of a mystery to most people, you have to, you're you not gonna tell me, I take I, it. I can't tell you. Okay, <laughs> but tell me a little bit about how it was discovered or, or, or a little bit of its background.
3: Sure, so um, one of our curators had read an article, uh, um, another institution had recently discovered this this artifact. And at their, at their institution, yes. And she thought, you know, I feel like I've seen something like that in our collection before. So she went and looked and the nature of this artifact is such that it looks like one thing, but there's more to it. Really? So it, it, on the surface, looks like a common artifact of Asian descent. Okay, and there's a, a fair amount of these in existence, but there are some that have a special quality about it that when viewed in a specific way, um, becomes something different. And actually part of, <laughs> part of the name of this thing is magic. And I think what it really comes down to is that she looked into it and it had all the earmarks of what it should be. But then in the last few months, we were able to um, do some things with it to make sure that it was in fact what we thought that it was. And in finding out that it was this, um, it's one of three known in the United States, one of which is at the Met.
1: So the value is amazing.
3: Potentially, yeah, yeah. They don't so, like to va- they don't like to value artifacts. And,
1: yeah, no, I understand because they
3: have a, a value greater than its physical value.
1: So tell me a little bit about the fact that you have two hundred fifty thousand items, but we're not quite sure what all of them are.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, we know what they are, but there there might be more to them than we thought. Like this, for instance, um, I, you know, part of why we have so many items in the in the collection is back, you know. Again, 100-plus years ago, um, people like Figgy, or in this case, Ficky, which is a different person, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, were traveling the world because they had the means to and collecting items from the world to bring back to the Quad Cities so that people from the Quad Cities who you know, wouldn't have the opportunity to travel would be able to come to the Putnam wasn't called the Putnam at the time, but the Putnam to see see all of these things from around the world, which is why we have you know the the taxidermy of all the animals and all the different artifacts from from all over the world.
1: It is amazing that the uh, not early settlers, but the turn of the last century mm-hmm. uh, uh, people that were in the Quad Cities really had an impact to us even today. Oh, for sure, because these collections are amazing. Now it's going to be shown at the Putnam's annual fundraiser. Which is still coming up. Tickets are available still?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's about just a few weeks away. It's uh, February 24th.
1: And how big is this fundraiser? Um, I mean, It's an important part of the year imp- for Podcast. It's an
3: important part of the year. It's probably our second biggest fundraiser. Um, but more than anything, I think the, the biggest aspect of it is that it reminds the community of what we're all about. You know, this isn't just, I mean, although there is food and drinks and a silent auction and a live auction and all of those things, it isn't just about raising money necessarily, although that's important, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Um, it's about reminding people who we are and what we do.
1: A bit of showcasing, of course, which is so important. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you're talking about the, I, I keep going back to the 250,000 uh, sure. uh, pieces that are in storage or on display. It has been the Putnam's uh, effort lately is to make sure that more of those artifacts are in front of the public's eyes. I mean, that that seems to be a real driving force at the Putnam these years.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of different changes at the Putnam. Uh, Back in April, we opened our common ground exhibit, which was the refurbishment and redoing of our River Prairie People exhibit, which had been there since the mid 80s. And so this was an opportunity for us to kind of reframe the history of the Quad Cities, through multiple lenses. Um, originally, the exhibit was set up in a timeline, you know, fashion, so you went from point A to, to current. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a little bit more, I mean, it's sort of timeline but it's much more thematic in nature so that you talk about different aspects of history. But what's the most interesting about it to me is that we're focusing on stories that weren't there before. All historical things, all historical facts, but People that maybe were looked not not included before, women, uh, people from marginalized communities. Well,
1: and, and that just seems to show that the fabric of the Quad Cities is, is more than just through one person's lens, and exactly. and that really seemed to be what the publics, uh, what the Putnam's been doing over the last few years, is to to widen that lens as far as uh, looking at what the community's like. Exactly, exactly, I mean, that's the whole. And we're seeing that in museums all over the place, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. In fact,
3: um, I'm sure you've heard in the news recently about the field having to cover up um, Native American artifacts. Um, We don't have to do that because when we redid Common Ground and those artifacts, they were um, blessed, confirmed as it were, by those communities because of the relationships that our curation team has mm-hmm. with those communities to be able to show you know, the things that they deem appropriate to show. Because there are things in the, in the collection that either have been decommissioned and, and given back to certain nations or different communities, but also things that they have deemed as not appropriate um, uh, to be on display.
1: Let's talk about coming up in March uh, for kids. Educational programs really highlight some of what the Putnam does. Yeah. You've got full day camps that start March 11th, half day camps that start March 25th. I know that fills up fast.
3: Yeah, yeah. In fact, we've got, it's both both weeks. So the we're trying to serve two different spring break weeks. Okay. So the week of the 11th, we've got full day and half day camps, and then the week of the 25th, we've got full day and half day camps. Okay, all right. So it's the same material just two different weeks to reach two different groups.
1: And, and tell me, how. I mean, how does somebody like sign their kids up? And and is it one of those things, the sooner the better?
3: The sooner the better, for sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very easy, uh, just on our website, um, putnam.org uh, slash education, you can get there, or you can just go there and search Spring Break Camps and you can sign up. sign up there.
1: Tell me about what you're seeing in the Putnam these days, because during the pandemic, Attendance, particularly school groups, was really diminished. What's going on right now?
3: Um, I would say there are school group um, numbers are pretty much back, back to pre-pandemic okay. numbers. Um, you know, sometimes with with different funding, it's you know it's just as much about funding issues and uh, school districts having the time or resources to bring a group as as much as anything. Um, generally, our attendance is is still. Trying to rebound, I think, um, from the pandemic, just people's habits have changed, and I hear it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm fairly new at the Putnam, and I hear it all the time. People say, "Oh, do you guys still show movies and all that?" Yes, yeah. every day. <laughs> yes, every day we do, and uh, you know, just kind of reminding people, and that's and that's kind of what we've been doing the last, you know, year or so is just. A lot of activities to remind people that we're a place to come do fun, educational fun, plain fun, you know, activities.
1: Our thanks to Putnam's marketing director, Scott Peak. On the air, on the radio, on the web, on your mobile device and streaming on your computer. Thanks for taking some time to join us as we talk about the issues on The Cities.
0: Wheeland Presley and Van Ho Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Whelan Presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Ho in East Moline. Proudly supporting WQPT. Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities.